2: Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. We're all doing different elections. Yeah, uh, interesting. Not? On today's show, President Biden reboots his midterm agenda and message in order to fend off a red wave in November. Communism? Let's be careful when we talk about red waves. Okay, okay. Democratic strategist Adisu Demissi joins to talk about a DNC proposal to potentially dethrone Iowa and change the presidential nominating process. And... We try to break up some of the tough news with a few fun mailbag questions about Pete Davidson, Elon Musk, and Tom Brady. (laughs) In that order. (laughs) How about that? How about that for a lineup? But first, we are very excited to announce Stuck with Damon Young, a Spotify original podcast from Gimlet and Crooked Media. This is a show where award-winning author Damon Young explores the uncomfortable, hideous, and hilarious absurdity of being black in America. He's joined by some of the brightest minds and bold voices of the black community, including Nicole Hannah-Jones, Sam Irby, Jason Reynolds, and more. The trailer is live right now, and the first episode drops on March 22nd. Listen to Stuck with Damon Young for free, only on Spotify. So exciting. It's been in the works for so long.
3: Damon is so smart and so funny. I read his book several years ago, and it's brutally honest and hilarious and great, and the show is going to be
2: incredible. So great. excited for the show. Great show. Great, great show. Also, check out the latest episode of America Dissected. This week, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed talks to Dr. Adil Rishi, lead author of a position paper from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, get ready, love it, about uh, daylight savings time, yeah, as yeah. well as the long-term health consequences that can come with it.
4: Listen, all right, I'll just say this. I interviewed uh, this uh, doctor about this very topic, and while it is true that he came on Love It or Leave It after what I believe was like a 20 hour shift in the hospital, uh, I still gave it to him pretty hard, and honestly, I don't know, I don't know. I think he's right. (laughs) What are you, fucking Joe Rogan? Yeah, I am, I (laughs) am, I am. I'm sorry. I'm Joe Rogan who took keeps. (laughs) You gave it to him pretty hard? It was an interview about sleeping. Yeah, it was, and he was exhausted. And an hour on your clock, you know? Yeah, (laughs) here's the thing, here's the thing. I'll tell you, here's the thing. There is a very good argument against the time switch. His case for why it should be standard time versus daylight saving time is spurious at best because it depends on what state you're in. All I'm saying is, it's more nuanced than 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 these uh, than big pharma would have you believe. Uh, he Just gives it go-
3: uh, gives it to his guests hard and gives it to us straight, huh? <laughs> <laughs> That's
2: look, what we're getting here. Look, look lo-
4: <laughs> dear diary. <laughs> By the way, I uh, like the extra hour of daylight right right now. I'm just going to turn it off. Pete Davidson.
2: Pete Davidson. We're not at Pete Davidson yet. Pete Davidson,
4: Elon Musk. We have a whole show to get to. Tom Brady. Wait, no. I'm playing a new game. It's called Fuck Kill Kill. Oh, my God. Should we get to the news? What do you guys think?
2: Uh, Uh Let's get to the news. (laughs) President Biden, you know. He's in the White House. President fucking, Biden's... Fucking Putin over here. Yeah, exactly. we're about to get... into the show. We have a tone shift here okay, that we need good. to yeah, really nail. I'm, I'm, I'm for it. it. President Biden's biggest challenge right now is dealing with Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, but he's also trying to fend off a bunch of wannabe autocrats here at home. He just spoke about the war and the midterms at the House Democratic retreat in Philadelphia, which led to a pair of big picture stories in the Washington Post and the New York Times about a new message... And a new confidence among Democrats. How about that, guys? Well, last. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, the Post story says, quote, Biden's record on Ukraine has offered what Democrats hope is a chance to resurrect the pitch he made to voters as a candidate, that he represents an antidote to the chaos of the Trump administration and is capable of restoring the United States' leadership on the world stage. And the Times says, quote, Biden's advisers acknowledge that the crisis in Ukraine presents a chance for a reset, perhaps the president's best opportunity to restore his standing before November. On the other hand, the economic fallout from sanctions against Russia and now lockdowns in China because of Omicron finally hitting that country could lead to supply chain issues and double-digit inflation that lasts at least through the rest of the year. Here's Joe Biden laying out the stakes in his speech to Democrats last week. This off-year election, in my view, may be the most important off-year election in modern history because we know what happens. We know the fundamental change that shifts if we lose the House and Senate. The only thing I'll have then is a veto pen. What do you guys think? Uh, is Biden's handling of Ukraine a chance for a midterm reset? Or will this crisis just make everything more difficult? Love it? I don't know what a midterm reset is. What I, I it's, it's something the Democrats spin reporters on just to say uh, things are better now.
4: Well, you know, it's <laughs> interesting. It's like, look, now that now that there are tanks rolling through Eastern Europe, it really makes a case for the Biden leader. Like, I, I actually think what, what what I think is true is Biden's handling of the crisis in Ukraine, the rallying of allies, the leadership and the gravitas, the, the sense that he and his team have his arms around this highlights what I think has been a little bit lost in the last year or so, which is this is a president that came to office in a period of incredible crisis and peril, years of chaos and incompetence under Trump, a pandemic, a country that was reeling and I think it puts him back in that place as a person who was chosen because he understood how to lead in a moment of peril.
2: Yeah, I do go to bed every night thinking, um, thank God Joe Biden is president right now and not Donald Trump as we're dealing with uh, a madman with nuclear weapons. We have we have one over there. We don't need one mm-hmm. here as well. Uh, t- Tommy, what do you think? I think you both are
3: painting an accurate picture and one that is sort of understood by an informed voter. I do think though when you're trying to to sell maybe a less engaged, less informed voter on there being less chaos in the world as they're watching uh, yeah. a massive war in Europe spiral out of control, that's going to be a tough sell. I felt like we dealt with a little bit of this uh, when we were at the White House, whether it was during the Arab Spring or the Fukushima nuclear meltdown or the BP oil crisis like you can have a process in place and be doing the right things and the outcome can still be God awful. And that's kind of what people are going to see on the nightly news. Um, and and really the chaos piece of the Trump era was the tweets and just being a shithead all the time (laughs) publicly. And he's kind of disappeared off the world stage. And so that element is gone now. And so, you know, I think the challenge for Biden is going to be, maybe this will be the reset they need. Who, Who knows? Maybe now he's a wartime president, but I think, The truth about being president is your power is far more limited than people think, and they just want you to fix everything, even if it's not within your power to fix. And I'm worried that really what people are going to see at the end of the day is high gas prices and inflation and scary stuff in the world. And I'm not sure that that cuts to the benefit of the incumbent most times.
2: Oh, I agree. (laughs) Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, my my comment was I, I really do thank uh, God look, every night I go to bed that he's president and not I Trump. Know. That's my personal. Thing, I want to be wrong, but I no, I think I think first of all, it's a very small approval bump right now. I don't yeah, even I, know it, if you could call it that. It's a it, it yeah. The, if you look at the five thirty eight average, it's going up a little bit. But I think it it might be due to two things. One, a sort of a rally around the flag effect that happens at the beginning of a conflict like this. We have no idea where this conflict is going to go, so let's not even try to predict it. Um, and and also. Improving pandemic conditions right now, case levels, hospitalizations, ICU especially are like as low as they were even you know before Delta and that wonderful spring of of 2021. Um, but ultimately, double digit inflation, global instability, and the trend of a president's party losing seats in a midterm uh, election anyway is an incredibly challenging mix. Incredibly challenging. And I think the big question is, to your point, Tommy, if you're the Democratic Party and you're dealt this hand, and you're Joe Biden and you're dealt this hand. Your job is to make the election a choice and not a referendum. Yeah. that's all you can do. That's,
4: that's, fun. yeah, that, that's, uh, we should get to it, but that's what I sort of, when there this, this, that Nancy Pelosi's big pitch is Democrats deliver.
2: I, 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 I know I want to get to that. I, you're, no, we should. <laughs>
4: that, well, you're already at it with the I know. Choice. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, it's like that. I can't think of a worse pitch, to be honest. <laughs> you want to make it a referendum about whether or not Democrats deliver? Like, the democratic message, whatever the democratic ma- message may be, whatever the phrase you want to use to describe what you're doing, the second half of your sentence has should be something along the lines of, Rick Scott said he wants to raise taxes... On the American people (laughs) by a trillion dollars for basically everyone under $100,000.
2: And then this other fucking goofball, Ron Johnson, wants to take away your health care, wants to repeal Obamacare. We got one of them saying they want to raise your taxes, and the other one saying they want to take away your health care.
4: It's not like we're making it up. The head of the Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee... One of the most important leaders in the Republican Party put out his plan for the Republicans, and it is sunsetting Medicare. It is sunsetting Social Security. It is raising taxes by one trillion dollars. That, to me, is the Democratic message.
2: that yeah. That's it. I mean, I do think we should unpack for our listeners about why Democrats deliver is not really going <laughs> to work, because, look, I think there is. We've been there in the White House as well. There's this feeling in the White House. There's this feeling among Democrats in Congress. And there's this feeling among, I think, Democratic partisans who pay a lot of attention to political news that Joe Biden has done all these wonderful things. There's the American Rescue Plan. There's, you know, and we've done all these things We've and and, and he's not getting credit for any of it. And, you know, there's the reporters are picking out the highest gas station prices, you know, problem. And if the mainstream media is helping the Republicans with message because all they do is say that things are bad and blah, blah, blah. And things are actually much better than they are. And there's this tremendous frustration that Joe Biden is not getting more credit for the fact that the economy overall, aside from inflation, is doing pretty well. What do we think about that?
4: I think there is not to be snarky. I think that there is a way to kind of put those things together, which is sort of what I was getting at at the beginning. And like if what's happening in Ukraine offers any kind of like narrative change, it kind of puts Biden back at the beginning of the administration, kind of taking being a leader at a moment of crisis. like. Is a president that came in they came into office while the country was in crisis, both at home and around the world. They took these incredibly important steps to pass a rescue plan, to pass an infrastructure plan. They did it in the face of Republican deception and intransigence and wacko extremism, and they got those things done. We are not out of the woods. Things are still difficult. Things are still hard. What are your choices? Do you want to go with the people that want to go back to how Trump governed? Do you want to go back to the kind of craziness and the corporate welfare and all of that? Or do you want to keep making progress through this difficult time? Something like that. Me, doesn't, that remind for you of, it.
2: doesn't that remind you of our 2010 message? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, don't, I don't think I remember back that far anymore.
3: It, the Democrats deliver is so funny. It's like, We have such a tarnished brand. And we're like, let's make
4: it 50% of the slogan. (laughs) Democrats deliver high gas prices. (laughs) Just just so you know, we're not... Enron
2: delivers. Just so you know, we're not like freelancing here and being snarky about it. The the, the Times pointed out that Pelosi and the House Democrats go to President Biden and are like, oh, we really want Democrats to to be the message. And unbeknownst to them, Biden and his advisors or his advisors had tested the message as one of many messages that they tested. And Democrats deliver was literally at the bottom of the list. It was the least popular message that they tested. Tell a story about what you've
3: done, but also what you want to do and who is standing in the way. But I don't think a lot of voters are going to be like, look, yeah, this war is scary. Inflation's terrible. But I got that. Stimmy two years ago, so I'm feeling
2: good about these guys. Like, you know, it's
3: well, whatever you've done for me lately. It's a very, you know, Janet Jackson electorate
2: here. I mean, the other thing that Democrats can control, aside from their message, hopefully, is the uh, policies they enact. Um, the Times reports that Democrats, uh, quote, are considering a handful of executive orders that would please their base on matters including the cancellation of some student loan debt. Uh, and are determined to enact legislation lowering the cost of prescription drugs. What do you guys think? Is that enough? What else should Democrats be, be doing or at least pushing for? So
3: did you know that this show also goes out on Thursdays? And there's this guy, Dan, who's really smart.
4: Oh, what does Dan have to say? He interviewed
3: <laughs> this person, Elizabeth Warren, who's this like genius senator <laughs> from Massachusetts. And she made a case for student loan debt that I thought was so compelling that 40% of people who, uh, who are paying off student loans didn't actually get a college degree. So they're paying off their their college debt with a high school level uh salary which Mm. is clearly unfair also that it would be it would do more to close the racial wealth gap than almost any other policy you could afford so i think absolutely it's a no-brainer especially i've always assumed that biden was waiting on um student debt relief to get build back better done because he figured joe manchin would freak out about the cost of it and now you
2: know that's not an issue. <laughs> well, it seems like from what Ron Klain said to us on, on that Thursday pod that you mm-hmm. mentioned, mm-hmm. that Thursday, Pod Save America. That God mm-hmm.
3: mentioned this morning on NPR. Did it really? The, oh, I, wow, yeah. look at that. Yeah, that, that, it gets that interview got everywhere. likes. That, Ron, what, likes.
2: What, and I think some people uh, on, on Twitter were confused about this too, just from the, that Ron's uh, answer to this. The extension uh, of the pause on student loan debt repayment goes until May. I think then when it's done, when this pause is done, that's when it seems like they will make a decision on executive action debt right. relief, like no one's right now anyway. Right, and um, it sounded like from Ron's tone that either they're leaning towards doing it or that Ron <laughs> wants them to do it. I can't, I couldn't quite tell, but it, from well, the tone, I got that that's what they're that's what they're going to.
4: Yes, I mean, it's sort of. <laughs> I said this. It's like they're a little bit at this point now, kind of standing over the country with a wax candle, kind of like <laughs> going to drop a little wax on the. This is what? more of a love it or leave it joke. Is, it, is this, are we, um, they is were like, like, it's like no, no, walk us season through it. one,
3: episode one of Billions? Yeah, it's a little bit
4: now. like, uh, oh, okay. you know what I mean? A little bit like, Um, it's a little S&M vibe now. <sighs> you know what I mean? Are you going to cancel the debt or not?
2: Well, look, I th- <laughs> <laughs> sometimes I think Democrats um have a policy discussion over here. I'm just going to keep going. Come back from that. that one. I'm in a weird place going. today. Uh, they have a policy discussion over here and then they have like a where it's our slogan, our bumper sticker over here. And I actually think when you think when they come up with the policy that they're pushing forward, they should think about it in terms of a message. Right. As well as the in terms of the policies they pursue. So you lower the cost of it's all about costs. Right. Biden did this in the State of the Union, I think, quite well. Mm-hmm. It's all about lowering costs for people. It's lowering the cost of healthcare, both prescription drugs and uh, health care premiums, which they would do with some of the uh, healthcare subsidies that were in, you know, the, the bill that which shall not be named. The uh, triple- It's called the Democrats deliver bill. <laughs> yeah, it's called the Democrats deliver bill. Uh, education, student debt and then energy, both gas rebates, uh, yeah. which uh, some yes. Democrats have been talking about and long term clean energy transition. I think Biden, the State of the Union, said that his clean energy investments would reduce the average family energy bill by five hundred dollars. Right. And then you say the real popular part and we're paying for it all. By getting rid of huge tax cuts for the 1%, big corporations, and uh, oil companies. Yeah. And, that, and you say that over and over. Healthcare, education, energy, taxing the rich, oil companies. You just do it over and over and over again. And then you actually push for it. And some stuff you can do executive action. And some stuff it seems like Joe Manchin is amenable to. I know. I know this was like controversial at the time. But I wonder if you could get a $12 federal minimum wage uh,
3: floor from this Congress. Wasn't didn't they all just feel like fifteen was too high when we made a run at it? Then I wonder if you could lower that down and still say okay, we delivered on twelve. We oh, want to keep well, you have 30. to
2: get ten Republicans on that. But I thought we could do it with the reconciliation.
3: Ooh. I think you need. Okay.
2: I think you need the Republicans, hey, but I, hey, I do hey, think hey. that, like it's Romney, a brainstorm. It's yeah, brain, no, no, it's a brainstorm. we're just we're spitballing here.
3: So I, I think you're right that that, that is <laughs> that is a very important message in terms of your proactive agenda. The other agenda, the other, you know, the counterpoint is the extremity of the Republican Party, and luckily they're helping us out there. One, you know, a lot of these candidates that are emerging are just. Insane people, you know the 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 person running for senate in Arizona stormed off the set of sixty Minutes Australia a couple of days ago, which begs the question: Why are you doing sixty Minutes in Australia? No, <laughs> right? So that's <laughs> so we can get into some of their positions. It, um, you know, like Biden, I think, could very credibly argue that uh, Roe versus Wade is on the way to being overturned. Idaho today. Passed a Texas-style bill that would outlaw abortion after six weeks, which, for all practical reasons, makes it impossible to get uh, access to abortion care in many states. And I think you know he can argue that keeping the Senate is the only way to balance out the courts in the long term, right? So there's an extremity of the Republican Party piece of this that could be compelling too. You know, the the uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson nomination is, in some polls, it looks like has excited uh voters of color made them more likely to turn out made young people more likely to turn out so there's some enthusiasm there too yeah Yeah,
4: i was actually pleasantly surprised that uh according to like i think morning consult the latest shows that like democrats are slightly more enthused about voting in the midterm than republicans Mm -hmm. i'm skeptical of that to be honest but it's there
2: yeah uh here's a real gem from the washington post about uh what happened at last week's democratic house retreat in philadelphia uh in terms of message now that we're into the message conversation Uh, Quote, a sitcom showrunner and a best-selling fiction writer encouraged them to tell stories rather than give voters the usual laundry list of reasons Democrats should remain in the majority. Three marketing executives. Shame it was Louis C.K. and J.K. Rowling. (laughs) Three marketing executives, including one from Pepsi. Pepsi uh, urged them to craft their messages like sharp advertisements and leaders echoed a new slogan unveiled by the National Party. They can deliver. What's what sitcom? I don't know. It's just a, I mean Was it Love? No, was it wasn't me. What do it wasn't you, me? Was it me? Now that advice, should you tell stories instead of a laundry list? Yeah, of course. Did they, they need it? Did they need the sitcom showrunner and uh to, I wanna know who the best-selling I th- fiction writer? Probably not. Okay, it depends
4: not. on the sitcom. Friends? friends? Yeah. If you know who, if you I'm know friends. who, get me the information. If you're hearing this and you're in Los Angeles and you know what showrunner went to the retreat, tell me. Everybody loves Raymond's. It.
3: Not but again,
2: I do think the most—telling a story is important. Love it. I think you laid out one story that 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 works. I also just think it's a constantly a choice. It, like, they want to raise your taxes to take away your health care. And and we are fighting to do all these things. Some of them they'll be able to do before the midterm. Some of them give us a bigger majority and we'll do them.
4: It'd be funny if it was like uh, the new message is like, Democrats deliver and we're going to fuck up those assholes at Coke. <laughs> <laughs> when I was working
2: on <laughs> how'd <laughs> that get in there what the what the hell when
4: I was working on the Edwards campaign
3: like there was a this was 2004 before all the really bad stuff happened and someone uh, forced us to bring in some like what w- Madison Avenue like ad campaign guru, like happens all the types time. and it was the guys who did the absolute vodka campaign which just led to endless jokes about like absolute Edwards there was just you know it's all the same advice it's all the same like silly
2: who's Hail the guy Mary-y who did the don't think things. like an elephant george jo- uh, what's his george name like lake remember remember when barack obama told me to take that meeting
3: i think obama met <laughs> with him too and he kept referring to it as a mem remember there was a meme this was there in was, the senate office this is when
2: he was all the rage
4: and then right then it became like you know don't refer to your opponent by name and Then you don't ever use their attack in your sentence. It looks like completely incomprehensible rhetoric. Just absolutely
2: incomprehensible. I think the important thing, the important takeaway here from this, whatever this was, which was great, is that the message does have to flow from the policy. You can't just slogan your way out of your values. And your identity, your values, the story you tell, the policies you're pursuing, the fights that you're going to take on and what your opponents stand for. All of that comes together for a message. It's not like, again, we said this on Thursday, it's not like there's some secret bumper sticker out there. The magic, the right combination of words that's going to unlock the majority for us.
4: And and also, like, whatever the slope, yes. that and that's right. And I remember, like, in 2006, remember there was this moment, it was America can do better, together we can do better. Oh remember all those yes. slogans? And, we can do better, yeah. And, and like, maybe those were... Make a, it in America. Maybe those were a value, maybe not, but, like... HBO show. I, <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> About 10 of them.
4: <laughs> incredible uh win the future that win was the one future. that we used yeah, the future, right. but, we had some bad ones but i do think that like i think sometimes you can get wrapped around the axle and like what i i do think that like people do respect the fact that this country has been through a really hard time and i think starting from that is like a really like start with those emotions i always think so like democrats deliver is so anodyne it starts it starts from
2: such like, a kind deliver of what yeah like like this is a it's we, basically like we're pissed. We've been working hard and we've done a good right. job. Why won't you believe Give us? us That's what that message is. Like yeah.
4: start from where people are. Like the country has been through a trauma. The con- like I, we, we talk about it all the time but like it's easy to lose that. It may not always appear in the polls. It may be hard to suss out but like don't lose like for, don't lose the forest for the trees. Like this is a country that has been through a very very hard time and is shaken and a little bit confused and anxious and angry and like you have to meet people there. And um, a
2: lot and a lot of people feel forgotten and not seen by their government. They do. A- and and it's not that they don't, you know, it's not that they buy all the bullshit that the Republicans are selling, but they feel like, you know, I, I I want I want to see more progress. And I at least want to know if I can't see progress, that the people that I elected are fighting like hell to make that progress. And they're fighting for me and they're not fighting for the assholes who are running oil companies and super rich and all the other. That's what they're looking
3: for. And that's for. hard when uh, you're controlling all branches of government and you can't get everything done, right? And you end up yeah, having to well, explain Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin for two years like we've been doing. Um, question, I think this happened when I was out for a while. Remember when Frank Luntz wanted a media company to send him to Ukraine to do focus groups?
2: There was, I, I did see that. He he like tweeted that, uh, he was like, send, send me, I'll do a focus group. Like, how do you feel about Vladimir Putin invading your country? What do you think you're going to get out of that focus group? Anything? How did Crooked Whiff on that one? Did you we didn't want to send next him season. Out next season in the wilderness. Okay. Oh man. Yeah. I will say that one 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 good <laughs> I piece. I didn't know about that. It was yeah, it, was a, it was a tweet. It was an interesting tweet. Um one good piece of news here is and Sean Patrick Maloney, who's the chair of the DCCC, was saying this in some of the pieces about the retreat, that we've gotten good news on the maps on the redistricting. And that and that now there's not after all the mm-hmm. worries we had about gerrymandering, and obviously gerrymandering still bad, but uh, basically Democrats not decided what we do it, <laughs> we're gonna, we're if you're gonna do it, we're gonna do it in the states that we control. And good. Republicans also decided to protect more of their incumbents than to draw the maps in a way that could win in the short term. Something and so, I've
4: said for a long time because if you draw if you gerrymander too hard you get, you got to kind of make some, some thin Republican districts. You can lose some of those incumbents.
2: So the path is that the gerrymandering has not given Republicans the advantage we thought they would get in the House. And in the Senate, there are still a bunch of Senate primaries where the the potential Republican nominee is very far to the right and extreme, more so than usual. And so you might have some extremist Republican Senate candidates that aren't their strongest. You have a House map that's more fair than we thought it would be. So, you know, the playing field could be a little more even, but again double-digit inflation (laughs) and uh yeah it's yeah
4: the good and bad news is uh if we lose it'll be fair and square the uh but it does it does argue for just remembering that one other piece of what our message is going to be about the republicans is don't forget a lot of these wackos think the vaccine was a conspiracy to have bill gates chip you like a dog you know like that's (laughs) sort of just getting that in there a little bit too
3: yeah that's um that's interesting it's out there (laughs) that that take from them
4: Anyway. Is that Mehmet Oz who we're to? <laughs> you know I, saw, I this... saw a video of him, I think, drunk at a high school wrestling tournament. <laughs> I don't know what. His campaign's a journey. His campaign is a journey. That
3: primary's wild. The Ohio primary. Yeah. I, I mean, it's again, we all dislike J.D. Vance. You don't have to convince me, but uh, losing to Josh Mandel. It's tough. Josh Mandel's a tough, uh,
2: tough nominee. One of the worst human beings. Um, yeah, world. maybe it'll be neither of them. That's, yeah. that's what the polls looking like. Yep. Uh, okay, when we come back, Uh, Tommy and I will talk with uh, former Cory Booker campaign manager, Adisu Demissi about the potential uh, change to the Democratic
0: nomination calendar. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project
1: Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities.
2: Last week, there was a heated discussion during the Democratic National Committee's winter meeting about a leaked proposal to change the presidential nomination process by potentially adding a fifth state to the early nominating window, favoring primaries over caucuses and requiring states to reapply for their early state status, which could end up removing Iowa and or New Hampshire from the top spots. Joining us to talk about this is the former campaign manager for Cory Booker's presidential campaign, the current executive director of More Than a Vote, and someone who got his start in politics as an Iowa field organizer for John Kerry's t- 2004 campaign, our pal Adisu Demissie. <laughs> What's up, man?
1: Uh, very nice introduction. Uh, I'm good. How are you guys doing? You know,
2: good. i am I'm,
1: I'm, I'm a four-time Iowa caucus veteran, actually. So oh, wow,
3: you yeah. got Tommy beat. I thought Tommy was the Iowa guy here. See, yeah, uh, mine's, uh, mine's all branding. Well, th- this yeah, is yeah. perfect, Adisu, because. Both of us, I think, are coming into this conversation with a fondness for some of our experiences in Iowa, right? We've seen how the caucuses can be good. We can see how the process can be bad. Um, Some of this conversation we're having about, like, a bunch of DNC members in a smoke-filled room making decisions about a fifth state versus four. It could probably sound a little esoteric for people, like, how does this matter? You ran... Cory Booker's uh 2020 presidential campaign you've run a whole bunch of campaigns but that was your recent presidential experience how did the schedule of how the primary and caucus process was structured impact the way you planned and, and executed that race
1: i mean really it's everything it's the rules you know it's like a basketball court is so many feet wide a football field is 100 yards long like this is the rules of the game it dictates the uh, every decision you make. And so, you know, for us, and I think for most candidates who aren't universally known, the the early states are where the playing field potentially, at least in theory, gets leveled a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's your chance to, to compete on a relatively equal footing with candidates that may have more money or may have more name recognition or whatever it may be. So for us in 2019 to 2020, we invested... I would say 80% of our time in the four early States uh, you know, the other 20% was split basically between uh super Tuesday States and fundraising, uh, maybe 75, 25, something along those lines. But we thought our path to victory honestly was very similar to what Barack Obama did in, in 2008, uh, 2007, 2008, which was, use the early states as a springboard to uh, get better known to raise money and ultimately make it super Tuesday when we knew that was going to be the deciding date for uh, a plurality of delegate. So it was everything. It was, it, it was the, it, it is what dictated our entire strategy from day one.
2: Yeah. And what do you think is the drawback to having this particular uh, schedule of states, these, these early states, particularly Iowa and New Hampshire going first?
1: I Look, I I hesitate because like Tommy said, I have love for the early states in general. And I think what Iowa caucus goers, New Hampshire primary voters have going for them is that they're professional voters, like in a way that is, they respect the process. And I'm not suggesting that the other 48 states don't, but from years, decades of experience, like they, they take the responsibility very seriously. And so, but I think what they aren't is diverse uh, and certainly racially diverse, um, and also in many ways, not representative of the democratic party and where it is and where it's going. And so that said, I'm sure we're going to get into this. Like they have things going for them. The biggest is that they are small. And I do think that really matters a lot in this process. Uh, having small States, at least part of the early mix and all four of our early States are relatively small. South Carolina is the biggest and it's not, it's not huge. Um, It allows you to not just level the playing field, but actually do a little bit of retail politics in a way that wouldn't exist if my home state of California or Illinois, which is actually the most sort of representative and diverse state in the union. If one of those went first, it would be an air war, you know, the campaign Mm -hmm. would ultimately end up being about raising money and spending it on TV, mail, digital, and what have you. And so. There's, there's positives and negatives, and anybody who says this is an easy decision, like I respect the folks uh, who are ultimately in the DNC have to make it. It's not easy. It's not slam dunk. Uh, what states go first, whether Iowa and New Hampshire are part of that or not.
2: I mean, there's the problem that uh, both Iowa and New Hampshire aren't as diverse as other states. Iowa has the additional challenge of being a caucus over a primary. Can you sort of talk about the challenges of a caucus versus a primary?
1: Yeah, caucus organizing, like I said, I've done it four times. Um, it is much more difficult from an organizing perspective ultimately it helps you know in theory it helps the party and the democratic party in that state organize internally for their state looking forward to their races uh you know in the general election but caucuses are party organizing affairs run by the party um and that requires a lot of resources and a lot of time as we saw in 2020 and 2016 can go sometimes horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. And so in 20, you know, in 2017 we did this, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, 2017, we did this uh uh coming out of the 2016 caucuses, a lot of states actually switched from caucuses to primaries as part of the last, you know, go round of this process we're about to go through here. And I think most of them liked it because state-run primaries, ultimately run by the government where more people can participate, are um easier on the state parties that otherwise are going to have to, you know, kill themselves to pull off a caucus and ultimately sometimes it's too It's too much for a state party organization to, to pull off.
3: Yeah, I was sort of thinking about sort of good and bad parts about Iowa. I mean, diversity of the state is something you mentioned. That is not fixable, right? Um, like John said, caucuses, they're, they're at a set time. Uh, they take a long time. That can make it difficult, if not impossible, for the elderly, the disabled, working people to attend. I think you can... You can a, a, begin to address that challenge by creation of like a virtual caucus or other, you know, means to sort of amend the the format, but not totally get away from it. Um, the other problem with Iowa though, is it's not a competitive state. And so you do all this organizing for a year and the primary and it doesn't help you in the general. And, and you know, that's something that might shift over time. But to your point at these like th- this point about them being professional voters and taking the process serious is real. Um, it also incentivizes actual face-to-face conversations, not just, with the candidates, but between voters themselves, right? You have community meetings, literally, where people are arguing and talking in a constructive way. There are also rules at a caucus, at least in Iowa, that incentivize positive campaigning because you don't want to piss off the other guy's supporters because you want to be their second choice. And that forces candidates to do retail politics and take hard questions. So, you know, to your point about these are professional voters, you need a small state. Do you think that like some of the good parts about these early states are replicable if you just kind of found the right location?
1: Yeah, I do over time because, you know, it's only been 50 years that uh, Iowa, it's, right. I think it was 1972, 72, that, yeah. that, um, that Iowa, you know, came into play here and sort of came to prominence in 1976 when it catapulted Carter to the presidency. But that's 50 years of experience, which it's going to take 50 years to replicate, but doesn't mean that you can't find it somewhere else. But the one thing I feel most strongly about is, is the small state, big state thing. I think we would do ourselves a huge disservice if we just picked the states that were the most representatively you know, diverse in terms of racial or ethnic or economic or whatever it might be uh, uh, diversity, but ultimately we're huge and I guarantee you if that happened, what would happen is a lot of candidates would end up in California, New York, raising money (laughs) so they could spend it on television as Mm -hmm. opposed to in those States campaigning on the ground. It's just the nature of the beast right now. So I do think it's replicable. I think it will not be the same if Iowa, New Hampshire or either one of them does not, um, uh, you know, stay early Uh, meaning it will be, I think it might be qualitatively worse the first time because you've lost that experience just like with anything else. But does that is that a reason alone to, to keep it as is? I think the answer to that is probably no. No, no. I mean, I mean the other
2: thing is like the, the goal of the primary process here is to nominate the strongest possible general election candidate. And I do worry about caucuses in particular. And again, I have very fond memories of the Iowa caucuses because it's how Barack Obama won the presidency. But the more I think back on it, like the people who pretend to participate in caucuses are the most hardcore activists and in a general election you're going to have to face all of the voters and so in the primary you hope that the candidate who ultimately becomes the nominee has had to face faced a lot of voters. different voters yeah. and not just the voters who are most committed to politics who tend to be much more liberal than other voters and i think we saw that in 2020 when obviously biden didn't do so well in iowa and uh, but then did quite well in South Carolina, or which New was Hampshire. a primary yeah. and a very diverse primary at that. Do you, you see
3: how he's erasing his 2004 John Kerry experience there? I just <laughs> want to make sure you caught that as well because it's kind of. We,
2: hey, I yeah, was exactly. 4, four JK before, before Iowa, which were buttons Iowa, yeah. that we had <laughs> uh, after, for the, after. I, the
1: I remember. Staff. I remember it well. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. We, you, you, you're a two time Iowa caucus winner. You should, uh, you should be beating your chest about that.
2: I'm a two time. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> no, I look. I think. I think you're right. I think, though, that the, the one thing that I think has changed, even since we were there in 2003 now, you know, not even two decades ago, is politics is more nationalized now. Yeah. And it is in I think in theory, you're correct. But in practice. Your Iowa caucus goer or your South Carolina uh, primary voter or your super Tuesday primary voter are probably getting some of their political information from the same sources, mm. which was not true in 2003. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, it's pod save America. No, I'm not trying to get serious, <laughs> but it's true. It's, it's like how many pods Sa- it's Matt. It's Rachel Maddow. Yeah. It's New York times. Like, uh, you know, if you, obviously that's not true of every, you know, primary voter across the country or what have you, but Primaries are—it's something I think I got wrong in 2019 in running Booker's race—is that I was running a strategy I think much more tailored to a 2004-2008 media environment. But now, if your caucus goer or primary voter or whatever in New Hampshire is ultimately kind of similar in a lot of ways to your primary voter in other places, then it matters less. The retail matters less, and actually the state matters less. And so (laughs) I'm toying with this. I haven't, you know, come to a conclusion about this myself, but. It is it is not the same as it was, certainly not in nineteen seventy two. And I would say even in two thousand eight when Barack Obama yeah. was president. Um, and that means that we should, you know, at least be looking at everything and putting it all on the table as the DNC does every four years.
2: And, and the reason you're saying that is because of the unfortunate collapse of, of local media, right? That like people like, you know, someone in, in Manchester, New Hampshire isn't going to the union leader for their news about what happened on the campaign trail that way. Thank god that day. Yeah, <laughs> really, exactly. Yeah,
1: they're watching Ari Belver or yeah. Ma- Rachel Maddow. Or- Harry Melber, yeah. also a John
2: Kerry field organizer. I
1: know. Sat next to me in, in, <laughs> wow. uh, in our field Look how far everyone's and, come. Oh, wow, I you know. got some stories I bet. Well, did you, did you I but, sure did. I remember hearing that
3: from you. I remember hearing that from a bunch of like the field organizers I'd meet and like go to Iowa because I went like five or six times. Do you think that that shift was a Trump thing and like everyone being like an electability, you know, like Nate Silver downloading the 538 poll average, <laughs> you know, like just little – ball of anxiety about losing again or is this sort of no, like a john I think, media environment thing
1: i think it's a media thing i think it is again especially among democratic primary voters i think it's twitter i think it's facebook i think uh, it's i think it is that the way that we consume information now and political information in particular is we 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 have self-segregated in some ways into bubbles and particularly folks who are primary voters republican primary voters are the same right if you're yeah If you're, you know, Steve Bannon's podcast or whatever crazy lunatic shit they're you know they're listening to this this week, like is probably where you're trying you're competing to get on that if you're in the Republican primary more than you're trying to compete for the union leader. And similarly on the Democratic side, I think we have segregated ourselves into 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 media bubbles. I think it's bad for politics. I think it's also something that you know, if I'm sitting at the DNC. I'm not sure the, the question you have to ask is, do I want to play into that or do I want to push against the tide? Right. Are things going to go further down, down this way? Or are they, are we actually going to, you know, go, go, uh, uh the pendulum going to swing back? I don't know the answer to that, but I think it's, a, it's an important analysis point here, which is that retail politics and that, na- and the nationalization of, uh, is not the same. And the nationalization of politics is a real phenomenon that has accelerated in the last decade.
2: So, Kevin Cheeky, who ran uh, Mike Bloomberg's campaign, floated an idea that the closest state in the last general election becomes the first primary in the next presidential election and then so on. So the first five would be Georgia, Arizona, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina. What do you think about that?
1: I mean, no, I don't think. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, I, it's a it's a it's a cute idea. It's a cute idea. Um, but no, I don't why, think that. Why not? I mean, that's I think some of that is living in the past. Right. Like. Yeah. Would you have said that Arizona was going to be the closest, or was Georgia or Michigan actually the closest state when all is said and done? It's
2: so funny because Pfeiffer was the one who brought this up to me, and I, I said Michigan too, and then I went and looked, and by the end, even though there was all Wisconsin. that. Wisconsin. Well, it might M- have been Wisconsin. Wisconsin was in, in, in 10, this list. Yeah, but yeah, Michigan yeah. ended up being like three points, and North Carolina oh, was only right. was only a point.
1: A point, yeah, I even guess though there was, we was all,
2: just Trump thinking he won Michigan.
1: <laughs> Dude, on November 7th, when they called it, I think I was like drunk for a week. So I
0: don't <laughs> no, no, no.
1: But uh, but but I think it's a little bit of living in the past. I mean, look, things change very quickly. This is also a reason I think counterpoint to your Iowa point, Tommy, which is like, who knows where I was going to be mm-hmm. a decade, 12 years from now. Right. If someone had said this is where Arizona is going to be a decade ago, you would have maybe yeah. chuckled at them or Georgia was going to be a That's blue a state. Point. Um, or Virginia, you know, back before Barack Obama, like things change pretty quickly. And so I think I think we have to have diversity of every kind in the early states. I think it needs to be geographic. I think it needs to be racial. I think it needs to be rural urban, (laughs) um, which is not a small thing. Democrats are losing in rural areas. And if we force our candidates early to compete for rural votes, I think that'll help them in the general election. Um, Regional, right, which we do a good job of right now. But this is why it's a puzzle that's like not as easy as like just just a formula or just as easy as picking, you know, the states that are most racially or otherwise diverse.
3: Yeah, it's not easy. And, and look, one of the biggest challenges to previous efforts at reform is, is political inertia. As you know very well, like you, you're Cory Booker, you're Barack Obama, you go to Iowa, you try to get the endorsement from the such and such muckety muck the first thing you're committing to is, you know, keeping Iowa, New Hampshire's primacy in in the process, right? You end up uh, feeling like you owe them or at least, you know, candidates or or elected officials in these states tell you you owe them. Um, Do you think that Biden, because he did so poorly in Iowa (laughs) and New Hampshire, could be uniquely positioned to actually make these changes? Because he doesn't really owe those states anything?
1: Yes, but I don't think that I mean, you have, ultimately, this is a decision that's going to be made by DNC members, mm-hmm. 450 people who have, who are elected by their states to, you know, it's it's not like Congress, right? They have their, and sure, they'll listen to the president of the United States, but like, they're going to listen to their home state interests right, first, right? right? And yeah. they're, and you know, if one of their states has somebody who might run for president in 2028, like that's going to come into play probably more than what you know the white house says etc so the answer to your question is is yeah but there are so many provincial interests at play i think with this that it's going to be it's i mean a, that- this is a dnc decision and <laughs> it's important for people to know and to remember out there this is literally why the dnc exists like everybody talks about the big bad dnc and controls the message and the policy and no the dnc exists to create the rules for nominating president and vice president of the united states article 1 section 1 of the of the charter so we this is why people get elected to the dnc is to do this they're going to take it seriously and take their power seriously i think too to
2: do that and rig the primary <laughs> is that, it, no and to turn off two factor authentication Reno. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but that – sort of my last question on this from that is how difficult do you think this will be to get done? Do you think it will get done? Like, I mean, this was a leaked proposal. You know, the Jamie Harrison, the DNC chair during the winter meeting sort of says, okay, Ugh, I know there's rumors, so I'm going to address Jamie. it. But it's early stages. Like, do you think this gets done by 2024 or 2028? I mean, if Biden, you know, yes. runs again, then it's not going to be a, as big of a deal in 2024. But
1: – I think it will definitely get done. Okay. I think it happens, it being – we will revisit the process and create a new primary calendar. It happens every four or eight years. We did it in 2017. We got rid of caucus, several caucuses for primaries. We, I believe it was in 2007 when we added um, or before the 2008 primaries, when we added uh, South Carolina. Yeah. Um, so this is not a new thing. Like it happens all the time. It will get done this summer, probably. And to your point, if and when President Biden runs for re-election, it will be a moot point probably for 2024. But we'll all be talking about this in 2026 mm-hmm. uh, and 2027 again. But I definitely think it will get done. It is again, it's why the party exists, the 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 DNC exists, and the RBC, that's the whole body is gonna go through their process and figure it out by I would guess by the August meeting.
2: All right.
3: Poor Jamie Harris. I mean, <laughs> just think for a second, new DNC chair trying to host. A thoughtful meeting about this discussion and someone leaks a working draft staff level
2: proposal to the des moines register that's just the the beginning of all
1: places yeah yeah it will it will be a it will be messy but like that's democrat you know yeah that's democratic party politics and that's okay and at least part
2: of the deal and at least with us we keep these we keep these messes (laughs) internal and quiet that's the good thing yeah yeah. (laughs) <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, D.C. Missy, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. Come back again soon. This was yeah, fun, Yeah, please.
1: Man. Anytime, man. Good to see y'all.
0: My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project
1: Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities.
2: All right, before we go, we put a call out on social media for a few fun questions to break up some of the heavier news we've been covering lately. And boy, did you deliver. Uh... At Van Weezer just replied with a picture of Pete Davidson and a moon superimposed on the head of what appears to be Ariana Grande's body. Uh, Two of many questions that come to mind here. One, what do you guys think of the news that Davidson is among six passengers who will be on the next launch of Jeff Bezos' space travel venture Blue Origin? And two, in case that wasn't enough... What do you think about the alleged uh, leaked text between Davidson and Kanye West, in which he tells the rapper to grow the fuck up after Kanye's public feud with him over Kim Kardashian? Got a lot in there, huh?
3: Have they released a reason why he's a passenger on the
4: Blue Origin?
2: Yeah, I read the stories and I could not detect. So it's just like it hey, just, we're chasing it just, it just, someone go, I someone wanting to go to space who's been in the news a lot.
4: Is Pete Davidson's world and we're all living in it? Sure. sure. <laughs> the, uh, that's of course Pete Davidson gets to go to space. Why the fuck not? That 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 Dutch rich kid got to go. He's just as deserving. Remember that? that I d- do, Dutch, I know that about. Maybe Danish. Sure. Don't come at me in the comments. I don't know if he's Dutch <laughs> or Danish, and I'll never know. I think that they're the same. But uh, 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 and then he had and he got to go with this woman, this incredible test pilot who like fought through misogyny and sexism yeah, for decades. Yeah. And he's like, "My dad bought me ticket." <laughs> Terrible accent. I'm in a weird place today, and it's fine. On the Pete Davidson front. Here's the thing. I saw these leaked texts, and all I can think is everyone involved in this is so full of fucking shit. <laughs> it,
2: like, it was p- it? so it seems like it was like Pete Davidson's friend that leaked the text. But like, what are we doing here? Don't like, leak any texts. Oh, Pete David- I thought Pete did it. I, I, I am anti-leaking. Leaking text. But the idea
4: that like, what's so funny about the text is like Pete Davidson is like, "Come on, Kanye. I'm just a guy trying to like support my girlfriend and his family," and you're like, "It's like, Pete Davidson, you're on SNL. You seem to have a pretty cool life." there are 3.5 billion women on earth and you're like, the one I want puts me in a position of being with a woman who has kids with a famous guy who's in some kind of a mental health episode that requires me reaching out to him to create a detente. Why do you want your life to be so complicated?
2: Buyer beware is what you're saying. That's just, a lot. It's
4: a <laughs> weird, weird, weird situation that I don't I don't fully believe. Have you guys
3: watched the Kanye three-part documentary on Netflix? I'm, I'm an hour into the first episode.
4: So... It is. I'm uh, very excited to continue. It's very much no. I I've I've got to finish. I'm I just finished the Tinder Swindler. I'm, oh, gonna, okay. do th- I'm gonna do this one. I enjoyed
3: that. It's very much in in that category of documentaries where it's kind of like, um, you know, like Michael Jordan is the EP on the Last Dance kind of vibe, right? Like it's kind of his close friend, sort of a collaborator over many years. It's. Amazing and worth watching because in it's like the classic like uh, casino arc right like starts yeah. challenges first act two is a blast and the yeah. third episode is a, so sad and depressing as hell but it's worth watching just to remember like that Kanye actually made some of the most amazing music of that era was a producer on more tracks than you ever realized that he actually didn't get the respect he deserved. In the hip hop community, as a rapper for a very long time, and then clearly when his mother died, like that seems to have been a triggering point for a lot of the yeah. the really hard times lately. So it's like it, you know, look, he, I, I don't like like him as a person. Um, Those but early it was, albums like, were incredible. A good window into sort of what he's so. been through.
2: Uh, here's one. Does anyone have any thoughts on uh, Elon Musk's tweet in which he challenged Vladimir Putin to single combat?
3: I mean, hey, what? nerd like someone who's, just, who's, who would probably kick his ass he's like a taekwondo expert man he wants attention
4: all the time
2: he is I, a, he loves attention he you always... know
4: when ben carson ran for president i thought to myself i guess being a brain surgeon is easy <laughs> <laughs> when elon musk tweets it makes me think oh inventing and transforming the electric car industry must have been simpler than it seemed from the outside because there is no one who seems dumber when compared to the actual output of his companies than Elon Musk. Yeah,
3: you know, Dave Weigel at The Washington Post pointed this out in a tweet. On March 4th, Elon Musk tweeted, hold strong Ukraine with six Ukrainian flags. And then 10 days later, he tweeted like this meme, which says, I support the current thing, which is sort of like the sort of angry incel-faced man with a Ukrainian flag. And then kind of like, LGBT flag you know sort of like the, the idea being so that
2: mocking performative support well for that's Ukraine, the, he, is what he's trying to do
4: he yeah. realized that he was doing something cringy and normcore because it happens to be correct and he had to signal to his weird fanboys like don't worry I know that anything normal is bad
3: but he also was like positioning his satellites over Ukraine to help them get internet yeah. access so which it is a good like thing which is a good he thing he talked to Zelensky I believe he's been engaged in this but then he also has to mock the people
2: care it's very frustrating very, Remember he's very when he, online and he locks when yeah he really too, likes online, too, too online too online too much too much uh too much attention he's he's a genius at, at, at many things he's just when you're a genius at some things doesn't mean you spout off about everything
3: right but yeah by all means uh, engage him in one-on-one combat because vladimir putin will certainly fight fair and not slap you in the face with polonium
4: or some other fucking
2: <laughs> wow now we're getting know. into what the actual combat would look like huh? well he kills he murders yeah, his know, opponents he does, yeah, he does. I don't think you'd have to time. worry about
4: polonium in a hand-to-hand fight. Well, I, you never know. I don't know how he's going to kill the guy. I Next mean, question.
3: <laughs>
2: Putin, <laughs> Tommy, do you have thoughts on uh, Tom Brady unretiring? News
4: so he's, good; it made he, me want to kiss my son on the mouth.
2: He was retired for less than six weeks. <laughs> it was a, February first. He told us he was retired. <laughs> such a
4: drama queen.
2: I'm now performing just for Elijah,
4: who's in town,
3: I so know, I can just get laughs out of Elijah. Obviously. I don't. I don't really have
2: thoughts. I don't know. It's weird. Football I, is his whole, I mean. It's your whole identity. I was going to, well, so. it's it's your whole identity if you're like, for, for many NFL players, but I think for Tom Brady especially, like there is, that's it, there is nothing outside of football. Football is every, you know, it's like, yeah. and he's 44 years old. So you're like, and he's, you know.
3: Listen, I'm 41 and I you currently I mean? can't go jogging <laughs> because I have a injured butt muscle. Okay. Uh, so that get out of here, love. Dude, it. Dude. So that's dude embarrassing. Yeah. So like, I, there is this annoying, like, sort of paternalistic, sort of sentiment. Horseplay got out of hand. Jesus <laughs> Christ! Yeah. <This> an... <laughs> I hate this episode. <laughs> <laughs> this is annoying. Really? This let is us know mass, if you do too, a listener. Massive an episode. Love episode. You <laughs> see this annoying paternalistic thing on social media or elsewhere? That's like, I just want him to resign and be happy. Make sure you don't get the CTE, Tom. It's like you don't know why he loves playing. You don't know what drives this guy.
4: If he got CTE. At, how how would anyone even fucking know? Like,
3: I, I loved Tom, Tom Brady. Cut it all. Cut everything they there for said. me for a decade episode. and a half of my life and gave me a lot of joy. So you shut up. Sorry, um, and He should I do whatever he wants. But... Leave that in, but
4: know that
2: I know it's wrong. I
4: just don't get why you retire. Why retire and not retire?
2: Yeah, I I, I think I under- he spent five I, minutes
4: at his NFT business and realized it was a fucking nightmare.
2: <laughs> I understand him staying more than I understand him announcing it in the first place. I did announcing too. The in the first place—that's what I'd say about that. Love it. Thoughts on Elden Ring? I almost uh, regret this question the, the second that it came out of my mouth. But go ahead. It's a
4: great <laughs> game, and I think people are gonna have a lot of fun playing it. What do you do in it? Uh, what do you do? Uh, you uh... help me understand gaming. My I have a twenty-year gap in my gaming experience. Same with me. Well, year. here's the thing. So, in the PlayStation 2, they added a second set of triggers, and that really alienated a lot of people, yes, and we that's lost what them forever.
2: These uh, controllers today with these kids, there's too many buttons on them. Using multi-fingers, using ten fingers. How about that? I'm for, telling you, how I really, about that for old
4: sounding? <laughs> I really think when they added those second triggers, it really threw a lot of people off. Yeah. Um, uh, Elden Ring is great. It uh, it seems an impossible triumph, an open world soulsborn game, and I love it. I can't wait to get back into it. I'm doing a strength build, but I saw Jason Concepcion's kind of magic build on the internet, and it made me very excited to do a magic build as well. Uh, These are incredibly difficult games. What are we building? You build a character. You can have a strength build, a dexterity build, which is more of a trick weapon. Can you make the character look like you? You can, although it's a very, very... Even the way in which you have to design a face is extremely complicated (laughs) and hard to understand. This is exhausting.
3: It's harder than Zelda: Adventures of Link.
4: <laughs> sure, but 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 dun, but Breath of the Wild, dun, 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 I do think dun, dun, is inspiring. It, it like Breath of the Wild has been a very influential game, and I do think influ- influenced
2: Elden Ring in a very good way. Okay. Okay. Uh, question from Hannah DeGroot. Groot: What is your personal favorite miniseries in the scammer genre? Dropout for me. Dropout is great.
4: I am I. I'm very excited for We Crash, which is coming soon. But right now, I am very into the Dropout. It's it's really well done, Liz. Merryweather. is a, a loveless merriweather absolutely friend of the incredible, show incredible incredible series
2: and amanda seyfried is great like the the cast is great everyone's great so uh, you again, want to talk about inventing i that. know that
3: i constantly <laughs> dig my own grave by talking about <laughs> how i'm watching just super basic lame shit and i you know it is what it is but i've been watching inventing anna and i will say it's such a frustrating show because the underlying story is actually pretty interesting, but they made it like four episodes too long. And I love Anna Klumsky since like way back. My like, girl. My girl days. Mm-hmm. But like she's she's so funny in Veep. Like she's one of the funniest characters in Veep. And they make her character, this journalist, like so annoying. He needs and they his try glasses. To, they dramatize the process of like the journalism for this story. And it's not the, the fucking Pentagon Papers. You're You're like figuring out. Like why this scammer scammed people. And it just, it's. So I watched, we watched an episode.
2: I was just, not, Emily, I think kept going. I could, I was not a fan. I couldn't do it. And then I, then I started watching the dropout and I was like, this is, this is what I was loving for. the dropout. Uh, loving you, the dropout. You mentioned Veep because someone asked like, have we been watching funnier shows? Because obviously these are some dark times. I rewatched, Emily started it from season one. I jumped in at season six and I rewatched season six and seven of Veep. I think it's the greatest comedy of all time on television. I really do. You told me
3: that, so I started watching season six, and some of the funniest, hardest
2: jokes ever delivered are from that show. I was in tears laughing at that again.
4: I will always remember we were on a bus between two cities. I don't remember what the cities were during a tour, Mm. but both of you you had edibles, (laughs) and then you were laughing through veep like the like i have never like two old men like there was something so old about it like when you see old men really laughing at their programs Jesus it was Christ they were so you guys were un- inconsolable. <laughs> it was unreal no, remember, like we whole, were in a happy right you had a great time it was so funny it was so funny it was
2: not before it was at the end it was at the end of the night we were going back to the hotel we weren't you know we weren't like yeah it was it was
4: it was five o'clock somewhere <laughs> but the, <laughs> it was fine
2: so funny what other good scammer shows are there um there's, is that like a oh well there's, there's you, the Tinder Swindler I mean Tinder I know that's swindler. not like a
4: I here's the thing here's the thing I get it I'd fall for the Tinder Swindler <laughs> I'd be in He had the Rolls Royce He went on the date you went on the jet next thing you know he's, his bodyguard's getting beat up mm-hmm. yeah what do you need it seemed real there's
3: a point in the conversation in all these types of narratives inventing Anna all of them where the person says to you uh I can't get international uh transfers to work. Or my my, <laughs> a, my, my credit flag. card got hacked. Red flag. Can You loan me sixteen thousand dollars. At which point you say
2: no. That's right. Yeah, you have to say no. All right. Well that's all the time we have for today. Um it was a Trenti political analysis. Trenchant political analysis. That's what you come here for. Uh, at least Adisu offered us some. Yeah, he some, was smart. Some, some Thank God for that guy. <laughs> anyway, we'll we'll talk to you on Thursday. There were good with nuggets Dan. even in the parts that were just us.
3: No, the, the, the Thursday episode of this show was also, actually really. good. And
4: also, if you add this plus Thursday, real good stuff, huh? <laughs> this plus Thursday divided by two. Now that's a podcast. Dan says enough smart stuff for five of us. Yeah. Well, usually I just
2: listen later? to Dan and then add a couple jokes. <laughs> Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner-Bernstein. Our producer is Haley Muse, and Olivia Martinez is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Sandy Gerard, Hallie Kiefer, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash
0: crookedmedia.